Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates classic, cult, and current films and the people that made them. I'm your host, Steve Rubin, and our producer is Ben Shrewsbury, as always, and our signature theme was composed by Greg Lerhoff. Here it's always Saturday night, and our mission is to chronicle film history one memory at a time. Tonight's guest, Gary King, is a member of the King family, a special effects dynasty. Mm -hmm. Gary himself has worked on such films as the 1998 Godzilla, Starship Troopers, Hard to Kill, The Final Countdown, Logan's Run, Damnation Alley, The Towering Inferno, and Young Frankenstein. And that's just a sample of, he has hundreds of credits. I even discovered we have a common credit. We both worked on Alan Rudolph's thriller, Endangered Species. Welcome, Gary. Hey, Stephen. Good to talk to you. Thank you for inviting me to be on your show. Well, I think of you as kind of the type of salt of the earth uh, person who makes up our business and makes it just so colorful and wonderful. And when you started to tell me about some of your credits and your background with your family, my, my podcast is really a celebration of everyone who makes movies and lives in the movie business in any facet. I, I don't care if you're a caterer or a or a executive producer. Everybody is part of the pie. Uh, I agree, certainly. Uh, I mean, my whole family was in the business. My mother was a live stage theater wardrobe uh, lady. And uh, it was all entertainment uh, for our family. And, you know, when my dad first started, he was a, a construction a carpenter with a color a prop maker back in 1958 or 59. He was working on the Marlon Brando Mutiny on a Bounty at MGM Studios. And when he came home, he said to my four brothers and I, guys, you won't believe what they're paying me to do and how, how much they're paying me. He said, this is, it's like working at Disneyland. He said it was, you know, and, and from then on, my brothers and I all knew that's exactly what we wanted to do. I've always yeah. wanted to work with my dad. Do you remember the first time you visited your dad on a movie? Uh, yeah, it was probably when they were doing um, uh, Hello, Dolly. Oh, over at Fox. At Fox, they had rebuilt, they had built the whole uh, New York uh, area with the train trestle. And right. The back streets of uh, New York. And my dad actually ended up getting a speaking part in the first probably five minutes of the show where Dolly's handing out business cards while she's riding a uh, double-decker. And my dad ended up having to be the painter that's painting a scaffolding or the uh, trestle. And she comes by at his level and he bends over and she hands him a card. But you hear all the music play over as it's starting. So you don't hear what he's saying. But he got, he got paid and had to join, uh, got a SAG card out of it. What was your dad's name? Uh, William Oscar King, Billy King. And was where, what, where, where's the ancestral home? Where do you guys hail from? That was in Hawthorne, uh, California. And was yeah. he a California native? Uh, no, actually they were from Iowa. My mom and dad both born in Iowa and they, they came out just after World War II. My dad had been in the Navy and right after he was uh, let loose from the Navy, he got into a carpenter classing, uh, schooling, and learned carpentry. 
he grew up on a farm. So he hadn't been around either the ocean ever before or uh, carpentry. And he ended up being a carpenter, outside carpenter, uh, until one of our neighbors who was working as a prop maker in the studios suggested that my dad should call and, and get signed up for the studio business. And he did that from oh, 1959 all the way till uh, he retired, I think it was in 1988. Um, so, so many World War II veterans came through California, through LA, particularly oh, in yeah. San Diego. And of yeah. course, San Diego was the home of the fleet down there. So yeah, I can see that happening. So yeah. uh, when you were in school, did you yeah. um, did you study anything specific or were you already thinking the films? No, I was actually, I was uh, studying uh, English, uh, English literature. And in high school, I was a um, like a music major. And I went into City College for a couple of years taking police science and criminology. So I was nowhere near being a studio special effects man. But, you know, during the summers, we got to go visit with my dad to the studio lots wherever he was working. And it was mainly at uh, 20th Century Fox because it was so close to our uh, home. Uh, the other closest studio was MGM Studios. So that's that was kind of in my backyard. And needless to say, we loved every time we got to go with my dad, spend the whole day there on the lot. Uh, I got to watch when they were doing uh, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, Lost in Space, Time Travelers, Time Tunnel, Land of the Giants. Well, we're, we're kindred spirits. I used to ride my bike. Yeah. And in Century City, they laid out oh, yeah. the, the roadways and they put up those two towers on yes. Pico yep. and, and the hotel. But everything else was a bunch of weeds. And I used to ride <laughs> my bike. In fact, uh, it was uh, it was uh, I think my first girlfriend and I uh, made out on uh, one of those weed streets where there was nobody around. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you do you know that where they built those towers? Um, that that was all 20th Century Fox property. That was our back lot. And that's where we had our special effects shop. We had our construction mill. We had the paint shop, the uh, staff shop, the welding, blacksmith shops. It was all in that area. And that was on the other side of, was it Pico? We had to, we had to move all of our equipment from that side of the lot onto the more of the uh, front part of the main lot. And that's when they put up those uh, Century City Towers in the hotel. When I was writing for Cinefantastique back in the 70s, mm -hmm. I did a big retrospective article on the day the earth stood still. Oh, I love that show. <laughs> Which is a great, great movie and, and certainly a timeless movie. And I know uh, that the saucer, when the saucer lands on the mall in Washington, the close-ups yeah. of the saucer were all shot on that back lot. And if you look very carefully in some of the night shots yeah. when little Billy Gray is seeing Gort the robot, you know, yes. walking around. Yes. You can see the lights on at Beverly Hills High School. It's just on the edge. <laughs> it's just the edge of the property. <laughs> you know what? That's, that's one thing about that area. Culver City, uh, back in the 20s, uh, the early 20s, was uh, MGM Studios. And then they did, uh, uh, trying to think, there is there's like three or four uh, major studio lots in Culver City. And that's where they did the Laurel and Hardy, the Little Rascals, uh, yeah. Charlie Chaplin. I mean, they shot all over Culver. 
And I, I remember recognizing some of the buildings before they've all been torn down, but that was all Culver City. And, and Fox, you know, shot everywhere too. They, they shot as local as possible. Sure, sure. Yeah, it was a money-saving idea for a local location. So when did you, what was your inciting job? What, what got you professionally into the business? Well, I would say um, I was a, a, back in 1970, I was working for McCulloch Engineering near the LA airport. We were building chainsaws and uh, racing go-kart engines. And I was a, an engine testing mechanic, but I had also worked around a lot of chainsaws because that was what I was testing. And so when uh, my dad got uh, the time, he said, Gary, when you get a chance, he said, put your resume into all of the different studio lots, Paramount, MGM, Warner Brothers, TBS. At the time it was Warner Brothers. Um, Disney. He said, go to all those different lots, put your application in as a permit. And he said, they'll call you, the, the union, uh, Local 44, will call you when they need an extra guy to pull off the street to come and be, be a carpenter or whatever. And I waited three years. While I was at McCulloch Engineering, my dad called me one day on a Friday and he said, hey, Gary, he says, uh, I got a job, a couple jobs for you for Monday morning. Can you quit? And I said, of course I can. <laughs> no problem. So he said, well, you have two choices. He says, one is working with Roy Arbogast, who was one of his uh, prop shop uh, special effects guys at Fox. He said, Roy's got a show and they've got to build this giant shark out of uh, foam and latex. And, and I was scuba certified at the time too. And he said, he said, you should... Uh, consider taking that job because it's a show called Jaws. And he said, there'll, there'll be a lot of underwater work for you to do a lot of rigging. And, and I knew Rory quite well. So then, then he, I said, well, what's the other one? He said, oh, he says at Fox Studios, we're going to do this show called Young Frankenstein. And he says, you're going to start out in the mill as a, maybe in the tool crib, fixing chainsaws that guys have rented out or loaned out and you know they come back in pieces. He says you're probably the only guy that knows how to put all those chainsaws back together. So I told him I said, well, Pop, I've always wanted to work with you. I said, Fox is the closest studios to where we live. I don't want to drive 45 miles out to Santa Clarita where Roy lives and work in the shop. I said I want to work with you. So I took the job at Fox, and uh, I started at five. We started at six o'clock in the morning. My dad says, be there at five. I'll introduce you to the guys. I'll give you a toolbox. And he says, and you'll start your work as a prop maker, which was a studio carpenter. And that's what I did. I, uh, I was there for uh, about eight years straight. So young, young Frankenstein yeah. is, is, is pretty much a, a movie that takes place on a lot of sets. I assume most, oh, yeah. of, it was, most of it was shot in L.A., I assume. Most of them, I would say the majority of all of them <laughs> were at Fox Studios in the, in like three or four different sound stages. And uh, we built the interior of the castle, the exterior of the castle. I mean, you know, where they could drive a car up to the front or the horse carriage. Uh, they had some, um, the, the uh, laboratory 
was on another soundstage and pretty much the i think i think we did the uh, small um what was it the small sh uh, blind man's home where he goes right out. i think isn't that isn't that gene hackman that, that was gene hackman yeah right <laughs> so we built those sets they were all at fox studios lot as far as i know now as a set craftsman yeah. my impression is you work a very long day oh yeah and then do you hang around for the shooting or are you already done well, I started out as a carpenter, a prop maker, but when the construction crew started finishing the jobs, they started laying everybody off. And I, in turn, because I had an interest in, in um, getting into special effects, my dad told me, you get as many hours as you can on the job, get into what they call the prop shop. And that ended up being a shop that my dad ran at Fox for quite a while. He said, get into the prop shop. That's your second level of getting into special effects. And then he said, you put enough hours in the prop shop where you fabricate anything and everything. Uh, and he says, then the special effects guys, when they need extra help, they pull guys out of the prop shop. And to get the prop shop card, I had to log, let's say 1200 hours of different types of uh, construction materials, breakaway windows, foam, uh, rain gear rigging, uh, construction, destruction. He also said, get your pyrotechnic card because you're gonna need that for special effects. So I started getting my state pyrotechnics cards, three different levels. That took about six years, maybe eight years. Wow. And until I got my number one card. And he said, get your federal license, pyrotechnic license as well. So that took another four or five years of logging time. I could do a fireworks show if I wanted. At the time, I had the ratings to shoot a, a public display, which I did for a, a few years. I helped a guy do shows uh, down Marina Del Rey. Uh, it well, this, was, whole, this whole idea of you can't get licensed to handle pyrotechnics unless you go through all this serious training and accruing yeah. all the hours. Yeah. leads me leads me to a question because obviously we're we're very much aware now of this incident that took place on the movie Rust. Oh yeah. Uh, I mean, let me ask you a question. With all of your credits, with all of your times in movies and television, have yep. you ever heard of somebody bringing a live round to a set? Never. Not until that. Not until that shot. And and you know what? It really surprised me that it was a live round. Uh, even though they use blanks, when the when the prop master has weapons, uh, they have dummy rounds. There are basically no pyrotechnics in the round. It's just for looks to show the actor loading uh, or unloading guns. Those are dummy rounds. Um, what happened, and I believe, and I knew exactly what happened when, uh, uh, basically within a couple hours after I heard about the accident. Um, there was a maybe a dummy round had been put into that gun, and when they removed that shell, the uh, the bullet stayed in the chamber. So when they reloaded it with blanks, it may not have been a, a live round. It's something you know where it put the lead bullet in front of a pyrotechnic charge for a blank, which creates pressure which forces that bullet 
as if it was a live round, which it created. And that's what killed uh, the uh, uh, first AD. Um, that cinematographer. Yeah, the cinematographer. If that, if that's what they're saying, what I had heard first off was, yeah, it was a live round. But what I had understood is they found live rounds on the set, not not directly on the shooting set, but in the trucks on the, on the location itself. And those I had understood through different uh, sources that uh, they had used that gun for on weekends or off time to target practice, which, you know, as, a, as an AD on any production, there's not supposed to be one live round on any part of the location anywhere. And so that was, that was the fault of the weapons handler. Uh, I was interviewed that to, night. Who seems to be someone who was very early in her career and perhaps yep. underqualified to have that job. I think she was underqualified and over overworked because they also had her as part of the set dressing crew. Now that's see that's a horrible thing to mix, mix uh, uh, oh, yeah. in a situation like this. Let me yeah. ask you another question. I mean, sure. obviously, all over town now, people are wondering if this is the end of using live or or even dummy rounds, uh, uh -huh. dummy charges on film sets with guns. With all of the attention now to digital photography and the ability yeah. to create everything like a magic lamp, yes. do you think that uh, this will have an impact on using um, traditional ways of shooting guns? Uh, to a degree, it will. Uh, you know, I I also questioned, since they were doing a, a sequence of him pointing the gun at the camera, which, as you know, there's an operator on one side, there's a focus puller on one side of the camera, the, the, either the director or the first ADs are near the camera. They usually would have to set up, and this is something that was mandatory as far as I realized, it was mandatory to set up some bulletproof glass you know, sheets around the camera and anybody that was in direct line of that gun. Um, even when an actor fires a gun at, at a, another actor, you know, they don't point it directly at him. They point it at an angle. You don't see that angle in the film, but they point it away because of that. You don't want to charge. Um, even a blank has force and it has uh, uh, wads that are paper wads that are in that casing. And when that goes off, those paper wads can fly out five, 10 feet easily, and they hurt. So they they made it damn near mandatory to put up a safety glass, what they sure. call it, safety glass. Sure. And I know I, that, that that was a low budget production, extremely low budget production that I could tell. They were getting away with situations, you know, having, there was some crew members that quit you know, a couple of days before that had happened because they felt unsafe on the set. So first off, when he was rehearsing, pointing that gun at the camera, um, it shows in some of the films that I've seen, he had his finger on the trigger. Even though he wasn't pulling the trigger, when he pulled back the hammer on that gun and then released it, tried to release it under control, his finger was the trigger was sensitive enough that when that um, hammer hit the round, the charge, it exploded. It had enough force to explode. And he said he didn't pull a trigger. Well, he did pull a trigger. He was the one that was in, 
you know, in complete control of that trigger being pulled to the degree that it released that uh, hammer onto that charge. Uh, I mean, that happened. I, I was on a show where an actor shot himself with a blank 44 Magnum. And that was a show called Cover Up. It was a TV series. A guy named John Eric Hexham. He basically had a scene of loading or unloading this gun on a bed stand. And he's sitting up with his back against the headboard. They shot a master from, you know, how a master shot is. It's usually with two actors or three actors, whatever. And then they go up tight for an up hand, up close shot of the hand picking up the gun. You know, anything, they do a one shot, a two shot or a three shot, three actors, two actors, one actors. This one just involved John Eric and they wanted to get a close up after doing the master of, of him loading the gun. And it didn't show blanks, you know, it just showed him pushing in. Well, he decided after they did the camera setup, uh, after they'd done the master, they were gonna send him off to his trailer and have a stand-in come in on that set. And John Eric said, hey, I'll just stay here on the bed. You know, I'll take a little nap because it was gonna take an hour or so to reset. You know how it is for a camera and for lighting sure. sound. Of course. So it takes a while. So he just laid there and basically napped. And when they were ready to do the scene, we had actually that whole day, we had been on a 12 hour day for about, oh, I don't know, four weeks, five weeks. And for this, for some reason, that particular day, we went through our shooting schedule with one and two takes at the most. So we were through that whole day by starting at eight in the morning we were done by four o'clock in the afternoon, which was amazing. And everybody was looking forward to getting off early, so-called early. And so we were doing the last shot and uh, the last close-up. And as the weapons handler was, my, my brother was a prop master. His assistant was the gun handler, uh, Pat. And when, when Pat was handing the gun or, or getting the gun back from uh, Hexham. Just as he was doing that, the uh, one of the producers came in, associate producer, I would say, came in and said, uh, hey guys, we know you've guys done a great job today. You're well ahead of schedule. So we'd like to add one more scene. You know how that <laughs> does to a crew that oh. wants to be home, you know, by dinner time instead of midnight. And as he said that, everybody on the crew just kind of went, oh, man. Well, Hexham decided to take that gun and basically said, oh, what the hell? And he put the gun to his forehead, to his temple, and pulled the trigger, just screwing around. Well, the gun went off. Oh, God. The blank, the blank fired. And, and I was right around the set behind a wall. Uh, I had a little uh, wind effects to do on a bush or something there. So when I heard this gunshot go off, I immediately ran around the corner to see what had happened because I knew they were using a gun. I ran around the corner and everybody on the crew was just standing there dumbfounded, frozen. I immediately jumped up on the bed, grabbed a pair of pliers that I had in my pocket and I put them in his mouth so he could breathe. And I looked at him and held his head and I said, get a towel. Finally, the focus puller jumped up there, gave me a towel, we put it on his head. And, you know, at that time, 911 
had really hadn't been in too long, but they called 911. But where we were located was at the top of the hill at Fox, right in Century City, right across the street from the hospital. And we basically opened up the back gates, put him on a piece of plywood. Uh, it was like a, a an emergency um, stretcher. Stretcher. They put him in the back of a station wagon, and within 10 minutes, he was in the hospital in surgery. But he was brain dead. Well, I was I was the first one that jumped up there to do anything. And so wouldn't you know it, my brother at that time was rigging. He was planning for the next show because it was a TV series. So there was another prop master, Bucky uh, Jones, was doing the show. He was outside. Pat, his assistant, and my brother's assistant was on the set. So within the next couple of days, the uh, federal, the F, it was the FBI or um, police, everybody came and they started interviewing everybody in the, on the set. You know, and they wanted to find out, what did you see? What did you know? And they even went to my brother who wasn't even on the set. He wasn't even on the lot. They called him up and wanted to know what he was doing when that happened. And, you know, they were looking for somebody to blame. Well, who to blame was John Eric Hexen. And well, I'll was, tell you, you know, yeah, when, it, when, it comes, when it comes to firearms, there's no yep. room for playing around. And Absolutely I think, none. Yeah. And I, I, actually, I actually had to do one show, TV Western, called uh, Guns of Paradise, where they needed to see a shotgun blast going into a bush that they had a rifle barrel sticking out of the bush. And I could have loaded a number of small squibs to, to create the bushes breaking from the blast. But the cameraman who was at that time, we were doing second unit pickup shots. He said, Gary, he says, I wanna see if we can get permit and you can use a shotgun and fire into this bush and they're just going to have the, the rifle pointed out from the middle of the, it was a fairly thick bush. He said, all I want to see is that the blast goes to that gun. So we went through a lot of paperwork, but got permission to do a live round firing on a set. That was the first and only time I ever got to do something like that. And I know of no other shows of people that I'd worked with that ever got to do anything like that. So to get a live round, shotgun, bullet, machine guns, you name it. If you're gonna use a live round, there better be a damn good reason why, and it better be as safe as possible. So that's, you know, it's a killer. Yeah, literally, literally. Literally, literally, um, yeah. After, um, after Young Frankenstein, you have you worked on the Towering Inferno for Fox, oh, yeah. which uh, I'm sure employed about every person on that studio <laughs> lot. <laughs> that was a huge, huge uh, undertaking. I even Young Frankenstein was busy for us because we had such big sets. But yeah, Towering Inferno, um, at that time, I was still also being a carpenter, a prop maker, but I got into the prop shop rigging. So we had to rig the breakaway ceiling pieces in the restaurant which was on top the set we had to do all of the water spraying the elevators catching fire we had to go out to fox ranch out in uh, what was it uh, malibu canyon in that area of fox ranch we had to make an exterior four-story structure with a full-size elevator glass elevator exterior 
and had to create that explosion underneath uh, that tilted it away from the building. And Steve McQueen goes in on a cable on a helicopter to rescue them. Well, we did that shot out at Fox Ranch. Uh, so I was on the carpenter crew building that structure, plus two other sets in that same area was an 80 foot um, inch and a half scale of the building and another 80 foot tall half inch scale, which was a 135 story tall building. We had to build those all at Fox Ranch. Well, you know, you, you watch that movie. Yeah. And you, you know that there are obviously a lot of special effects at work, but they don't show. And I particularly feel that the way you guys shot the fire yes. was so realistic. Sometimes fire can look kind of phony. Yeah. Or in these days, of course, digital does a lot of that. But I thought that the way that the that they shot the fire and those yes. miniatures was pretty impressive. It was it was a heavy duty pyrotechnic show indeed. Uh, I mean, we did the starting of the fire in a circuit breaker box, little sparks and flames. I was on one little set in that back lot where you were talking about um, with your girlfriend. We also had to do the, the giant explosion um, underneath the elevator. That was, that was a huge uh, undertaking that, um, wouldn't you know it, Erwin um, Allen came to the set just before we were supposed to do the explosion. And at Fox Ranch, there's a guardhouse at the at the start of the Fox Ranch. He had to go up in his limo and pull in and say, you know, I need the gate open. And, and the guard says, well, who are you? You know, they wouldn't let him in. <laughs> and he said, well, I'm I'm the guy that signs the checks for everybody. I'm Aaron Allen. Oh, OK. So he had to make a phone call. Hey, will you guys let this guy in? So he came in just before we did the shot. And what they had set up the camera, uh, A.D. Flowers was the special effects guy at the time. Uh, he had rigged, we had, it was a huge fireball. And when, <laughs> when he, he got everything set up, he noticed that the camera, the crew was all way too close, looking in front uh, directly at the explosive uh, charge. He said, I want this whole crew to back up 100 feet. And everybody looks at each other and the camera guys, they were going nuts because they had already pre-lit. Everything was all set. They just started complaining. He said, I demand everybody to get back at least 100 feet from here. Well, the safety officer said, you're right. Everybody needs to get back. So everybody moves. They all get back there. And when we set off that explosion, that fireball came so far out, it covered the area where they had previously set up and everybody when that happened they're all looking at each other going damn i'm sure glad he told us to move you know i mean there's there's times when the pyrotechnician who i i was for quite a while um, when you tell the camera guys don't look directly at this shot you know if you can set up a remote do that if you can set up a mirror you know how they do a, a reflective shot where they have the camera pointed away from the set, but it's shooting into a mirror, which reflects the set. So you can fire a fireball over it and it doesn't, doesn't hurt the camera. So anyway, that's, that's one way to do a shot like that. But you know, there wasn't computer graphics at the time. So everything we did on that show was live fire riggings. Uh, oh yeah, there's an, there's an amazing shot in the, uh 
when they're fighting the fire, when the firefighters are fighting the fire and a fireball yep. comes over their head, you know, yep. explosions. Yeah. And the whole the whole sequence where Robert Wagner has to do that mad dash across that atrium. Yes. Was that's one of the scariest things I've ever seen. You know what? I I thought all of those fire scenes were, I mean, those are stunt people, you know, most of them doing those scenes. But there are some actors, Steve McQueen, Paul Newman. They said, look, I can do that scene. No problem. You know, you don't need a stand in for this, a stunt man. But some of those scenes, the stunt guys, the ones that ended up catching fire and falling out of the glass down uh, off the building or, or just the elevator that catches fire and the guy comes flying out of it. All of those were stunt guys and they were gelled up with uh, um, contact cement which is a, uh, you know, it's a highly flammable way of, of creating a fire on a surface. We use that in the studios all the time for pyrotechnics. Well, we had to juice up all these guys and set them on fire and then open up the elevator door and the guy comes flying out of there. Uh, those are dangerous scenes. If the, if the stuntmen have the, the right uh, equipment that they're wearing, the fire suits, the full, full encased face, masks the, the air tanks everything underneath then they're pretty well safe on doing what they can do but the fire can do so much damage that you never realize how dangerous it is i can feel the flames anytime we're on a set and i have to be one of the first guys either to set the explosion off or to put the fires out and that's that's a you know pretty dangerous uh job to have to do. I was I had to become a fire safety officer in part of my training. Uh, now, now, the, now these yeah. days, my assumption these days is that they no, no longer put actors in danger like that. If they're walking through a fire room, they create the fire digitally. Yes. And that's and that was one thing when CGI came out. I remember our boss in the prop shop at that time. Uh, it wasn't my dad. He had he had gone further up in the business at Fox. Um, the guy that was running a shop came out and said, guys, he says, this stuff called computer graphics, CGI, he says, it's going to take us all out of the business. Well, you know, in a way it does, but a lot of ways it doesn't, because they couldn't create fires. They couldn't create breakaway glass. They couldn't create, create uh, fireplace fires, campfires, uh, bullet hits. That all had to be generated one way or another through the different films to get into a film bank that anybody could go and pull out, you know, a, a sequence of a bullet hit or whatever. That's what CGI does. And when I saw a lot of remakes of old movies, uh, let's say Godzilla, the one we did uh, was probably one of the first, I thought one of the first uh, CGI films um, that used it. The other one was Aliens Resurrection. That was like number two or number three. That actually started the CGI work that I had been on. Well, the, the other film that you worked on, which is definitely a, a CGI feast, is Starship yeah. Troopers. Oh, big time. Big time. I love that show. Yeah. Now that, that show just just blew me away in terms of how real it felt. You know what? We we had uh, I forget who was the props uh, for the creatures, the bugs who created those, but they looked so real. 
the the giant uh, uh, what they call them the it was like an egg laying. Oh, the smart bug. Yes, the smart bug. That's it. The smart bug. Uh, they created the face and the probably the first ten feet all around it. It was huge. Uh, when they created that, I mean, it looked great. The way they operated it from behind with their wires and the cables, whatever, it it really looked great. Uh, but all of the bugs that they had that attacked the forts, those were all CGI. And when they generated those, they made some props that that were up in the fort that had been blown apart. A lot of the bodies now were laying around. Right. Whenever you see a dead bug on the ground, yeah. I assume that's that the prop, prop shop. Yes, that was a prop. But when they when they had them, you know, showing thousands of them attacking, and uh, these guys are firing their weapons at them and hitting them, all that CGI work that was so expensive. You know, their budgets on films like that, probably half of it at least went to computer graphics. You know, oh, sure, sure. I remember. Well, I I just love the movie I saw when I was a kid called Them. Do you yes. remember them yes. about the giant ants? The giant ants, yeah. Yeah, and they had they didn't have any type of special effects like that. They just had to build those ants, and they were like uh, <laughs> they were like little uh, you know things. They rolled around the set on wheels, and yes. they operated all the parts. It actually was pretty effective. It's a great movie. Uh, I've entertained thoughts of of I've actually written a pilot for a series. To, oh, cool. to, to return to that arena, not directly to direct it, but I think there's room for it. But yeah, the, all all the stuff in Starship Troopers. Now, another 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 movie of yours that I'm a big fan of is The Final Countdown. I love that show. I just saw it just the other day. It was Did on. Uh, it was on uh, Turner Classics. Oh yeah, that's yeah, kind I, of I'm right bored. out of right out of Rod Serling Twilight Zone. Oh, time. big time. Yeah, and tell me tell me about what you did on that show. Well, that show, um, we basically started, I started to work back in uh, uh, in Miami area. Um, we flew into Miami. I joined a crew that was had already built a lot of the sets, which was mainly exterior stuff. But we went up to first, oh, I'm sorry, we first started in Norfolk, Virginia, on the aircraft carrier Nimitz. It was in port being uh, recharged. Uh, with the uh, nuclear reactors. And so it was in port for a couple months. We filmed on that ship for probably four weeks and started doing rain rigging on the most upper deck of the ship, which was the radar level. We had our rain gear set up and the sailors were all helping us rig whatever we needed. This well, It was like a sprinkler system, like a, a you know water sprayers. But we had to hang them out over the air boss's windows so that we could turn them off and on as if they were in a rainstorm. Um, yeah, because that's when, when the aircraft carrier goes through time, yes, it goes through yes. a storm. Yeah, so that was my first job was to do rigging on that. But also I went down inside and I set up a lot of bullet hits, blood hits on the Japanese pilot and right. the Marines that had the shootout with him. He grabbed an M16 and, and blew away a couple of the Marines, and then they loaded up on him. And I've, I've never had to put so many bullet hits, blood hits on an actor before. <laughs> that was a flight suit, and they wanted in, in hits and out hits, front and back. So I told the actor, he was a really cool guy, I said, 
do you know what bullet hits feel like? And he says, no. And I said, I took, I took my knuckle and I kind of jabbed him in his chest. And I said, that's what one feels like. So then I had him turn sideways and I did from the front and the back, same thing. He kind of goes, oop. And I said, now picture this happening about 50 or 60 times on your body from head to toe, you know, from neck down. He had a flight suit. That flight suit, if you, if you do a still shot and see his flight suit, I could see every bullet blood bag on that suit. And it almost, it almost, off, you know, just fired them all off within a matter of a minute. It almost sounds like uh, either Sonny and the Godfather or yes. Bonnie and Clyde. Oh, Bonnie and Clyde, for sure. <laughs> yeah, we had riggings like that on so many different jobs. Um, that was that was a big time special effects rigging. Has, have squib charges changed over the years? I mean, they've been doing squibs on people since forever. Have no, they, they changed haven't. much? As far as I know, no, I, I haven't been in the film business since... Uh, I think my last job was either 1997, 98. Uh, I don't think they have really changed. I think if anything, they've gotten smaller and bigger and, and more blast to them, maybe easier to rig, but the blood bags all have to be rigged still the same. Uh, the, uh, uh, just the rigging, the tape on materials, uh, the pyrotechnics are, it's like taking a small Tylenol uh, tablet that would be a pyrotechnic charge with a couple wires sticking out. Putting those inside behind in the inside of a jacket or a shirt and rigging them to go off. It was it was a quite an undertaking and pretty expensive. Now, did all three of your brothers go into effects? Actually, uh, three out of the four did. Yeah. Two older my my oldest brother, Robert, my two younger brothers, Terry and Jay, were all we were all into special effects. Um, my older brother, Bill, uh, became a prop master and, oh, okay. and he was, you know what, there's, there's a story sometime we ought to check on is think about how, uh, craft service tables started, you know, where they provide a lot of food all day on the set. Yeah. They, they make you fat. Yes. <laughs> Those are always the favorite of the whole crew. Oh yeah. In fact, my I brother I... Billy, when they, when they were doing, um, uh, ABC Circle Films, I forget what show he was working on, but they only needed a, a, you know, maybe a pot of coffee on the set. And Billy had the actors and some of the crew saying, hey, man, can you get, can you get us maybe some donuts or can you get us something? He got him hard boiled eggs and he was selling the coffee for a, a nickel a cup. And he was selling so much of it that the production office said, hey, you know, you need a budget. So they set him up with a, you know, a, a um, what would they call it? A craft service budget. And he eventually was doing coffee, donuts, cereals, uh, luncheon meat, sandwiches, ice cream throughout the whole day. That's, that's how craft services food part started. Well, you get really spoiled working on U.S. shows because the craft <laughs> service tables like uh, like a buffet with everything you want that's not good for you, but obviously keeps you going. <laughs> I worked on a show in Mexico, and and craft service consisted of coffee, orange juice, and maybe a cracker. Wow! <laughs> well, that was high high budget. <laughs> that I was all that. I'd call that what I call that is an El Cheapo production. 
So what do you what do you remember about endangered species besides your uh, your sweatshirt giveaway? Oh, the flying cows, <laughs> the flying cows. We did. You remember? Did you get to see any of the night scenes? We were out there at the cow at the cow feedlots and. Oh yeah! In fact, I remember the. It was the first time I ever heard of a of a laser sighted rifle. Oh yeah, well you know that was that was a pretty high tech. With I mean Alan, he had uh, I think he had done some studies uh, that was kind of like futuristic stuff. Uh, I think he knew what he was writing about, and I'm so glad I, he was the director. Well, I should I should tell the listeners this is a movie that was released in 1981. Yep. It was based on a phenomenon which had been throughout the Southwest for years called cattle mutilation. Yes. Where they would find dead cows out on the prairie, drained of blood, and there were no tracks around the cows. So all these weird theories started pro popping up that devil cults were getting the blood from the cows or UFOs were stealing them and doing experimentation. Yep. Well, Alan Rudolph directed a movie uh, called Endangered Species where it turns out that it's a group of mercenaries that are testing germ warfare strains yep. on these cows. And uh, Robert Urich is a visiting police officer with his daughter, and Joe Beth Williams plays the local sheriff, and they get involved cool. in yep. solving the mystery. So that's Endangered Species. It was my first show. I just can't tell you how exciting it was to be working on a film set you know, from the get-go. Uh, in fact, wow. I turned I turned thirty the day before we started shooting. I'll never forget that they gave wow. me a little birthday cake, and that was very cool. I must have seen that cake. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, when we got the call to do that show, it had already been in production for I'd imagine a couple of weeks. And the John, uh, the guy I was working with, with Johnny Burke, he was doing the Mannix TV series. He was doing. Um, Mission Impossible type TV show. He was running Paramount special effects for quite a while. He called me and said, hey, Gary, I got a show. He says, they need us in, um, what was it in? Uh, was Sher it? Sheridan, Wyoming. Sheridan, Wyoming. He said, they need us there as soon as possible. So we had to load his truck up along with two other guys. We had to load his truck up with all kinds of stuff. Had no idea exactly what we were going to be doing. But he said there's some hydraulics involved, which was the operating table and the uh, roof of the the um, uh, truck uh, that the semi where the roof opens up and the helicopter lowers the cow down into the box. Right. And right. the claws of the operating table grabs the cow. So we had to go out there figuring how we were going to make this cow um do all of this stuff this dead cow and our first scene that night was was we went out to meet the crew and the effects crew on the show had decided to leave because they were just so overwhelmed the gags they were rigging just didn't seem to work and they needed to find out a way to lift a dead cow off the ground with these four articulating type grabbers right and and so each one of these grabbers they made was probably took two or three guys to operate like a puppet to pull cables so that the claw would open and close. But the cow would have to be dead laying on his back with his legs sticking straight up in the air for him to for this rigging to grab him. 
and Johnny, Johnny Burke, after our full day of traveling, getting to the location, and it was mid, you know, it was middle of the night, the wind was blowing. We just walked out and saw the special effects crew guys and introduced ourselves. And they said, we're, we, we're here to help you guys. They said, so glad you guys are here because we're leaving. So they left us a lot of their equipment until our truck showed up. But we had to figure out a way to grab this dead cow's legs. And he was laying down on the ground flat. And after looking at the rigging that these uh, the other effects crew had, John said, guys, take a look at this rigging, see what you think. Well, I took some notes and I looked at it and uh, Larry Roberts and Steve, uh, Steve um, Gaelic, uh, we all looked at it and we come up with an idea on our way back to the hotel, which was about an hour drive. We're coming up, well, hey, let's, let's set up maybe a, you know, a little pneumatic claw that opens and closes. And uh, let's, let's figure out how to grab it while it's laying down. Well, I, I came up with an idea like a clamshell. You know, you hinge, you hinge the back of two pieces so they spring open and then we can fit it around the leg of a cow, which is like four or five inch diameter. They're pretty big dead cows. Are, you know, they have thick legs. So, so we're figuring out how to make this set up. And instead of having to show these four arms reaching down and searching for this cow, we shot it in reverse. So we had the cow already connected. These, these, these clamshells were on a pivot point that they could hang straight up and down when the, when the helicopter is lifting in the air. And then they would lay flat when the cow got down on the ground and laid down and they would open up like a clam and release it. So we did this whole sequence in reverse. And that's how it looks like these arms were out searching around and grabbed the dead cow. And was that a real cow or was that a prop cow? Oh, they were all real. So these are real dead cows. Real dead cows. In fact, one was frozen. <laughs> we had, <laughs> and we needed to hang the cow out for that day. Found out the cow was frozen. I had to basically dig around its leg. So it took off a lot of meat and skin so that the clamshell could fit around it. It was just that thick. But yeah, they were all dead cows. We had a butcher in a truck and he would have three or four different cows that are all look the same so we could use them throughout the shoot but yeah they were they were dead cows <laughs> they probably didn't smell too good no no it didn't smell too good but you remember <laughs> you, you remember we shot that during thanksgiving and they, i did because and, peter strauss uh, uh not yeah. peter strauss bob urich invited us all to thanksgiving dinner wasn't that cool inside of that big inside of that big building. Yeah, that, yeah, no, uh, I remember that. Potato. That was the coldest interior set I ever had to work on. That was freezing because it was a, you know, it was a holding for sweet potatoes. Concrete floor, metal sides. Right. Freezing right. cold. But I loved, we... it where they, I loved it where they served us sushi. <laughs> they had a sushi table in there. They had the turkey. They had all the dressings, everything. But I, I went to the sushi table. <laughs> that was my Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> I have very fond memories of meeting uh, Harry Carey Jr. and Gene oh, Evans. What great guys. Great guys and, and just a lot of fun. Well, you know, in, in mentioning the UFO theory yes. about the cattle mutes, I, it reminds me of what you were telling me that you're living near Bullhead City. Yeah. And you told me that 
you have had some UFO encounters. Big time, big time. It's not that I'm seeing solid objects landing or flying by. I'm seeing these little specks of red lights that fill the entire night sky. You see stars and planets. Have you ever looked up and seen just little red specks, like specks of sand in the blackness of the, of the sky? It's not, it's not black, it's red. And I've okay. seen this every day during the daytime. I, can, I notice uh, the shape of this UFO is, is basically a, a, a circle of red lights with four or five lights in the middle, almost like a number five in dice. I see these things at night, one at a time, start to move as I'm staring in any spot of the sky. And I've been doing this since I had COVID back in late uh, 2020. And while I was recuperating, for some reason, one night watching the space station go by, I happened to see this red light go directly from where the space station was flying over and it headed directly across and to the south in a matter of a split second, like it was a hypersonic weapons testing system. My brother Jay was on the phone with me and I said, Jay, did you see that? And he says, see what? And I said, I saw this red light, it, it was unbelievable. Well, then I stayed up that night looking at the sky for more of those. And what I ended up seeing was these red dots that started expanding not in size, but in numbers, where it was like a power power field. And yeah, it's it almost it almost reminds me of those laser light shows at the Olympics, where all of a sudden the the, the sky is filled with these little uh, little light drones, things. little drones, exactly drone yes. light things. Yeah, that's um, that's what it reminds me of. Yep. Interesting, Andrea. And you said you reported this to the UFO Society, and no one else I did. had. I did. I joined MUFON. I filed a report. I had a phone call interview for an hour by two two uh, interviews, and I've yet to hear a response from them. And that's been six months. Have you ever tried uh, to shoot a little video? I tried with my. Unfortunately, I've only got an i i fourteen uh, iPhone Mini fourteen, and uh, the camera on that just doesn't pick up the red that the I night see. sky. No, of course, of course. And, I, well, yeah, I've, yeah. I've, I've never had a UFO incident, but I uh, have been studying UFOs since uh, I think it was Look Look or Light. I think it was Look magazine came out with a UFO yeah. issue about 1967 or 68. Yeah, yeah. And I'll, I'll never forget that. And then, um, as I mentioned to you earlier before the show started, I worked on the movie Roswell for Showtime. Wow. So I've been down to Roswell and that kind of thing. You know, it's so, fantastic get to work stuff like that. But you so are you are your talk about it. Are your brothers still working in the business? Everybody's retired. My youngest brother spent forty, I think, forty four years doing special effects. Wow. I uh, I do have a nephew now that's a producer, TV production for Sony, um, out of uh, Culver City. I believe that's where their main office is. What's uh, his uh, name? That's uh, Chris. King. Chris, Chris, King, Chris W. King. Um, he started out, uh, he was like co-producer or, or uh, on-set producer for uh, Penny Dreadful. Oh yeah, which has been a yeah. big popular show. Oh yeah, yeah. So Chris is, Chris is the last one in the King business that I know in the film business now. 
and he's a he's a neat kid neat kid i gotta ask you a question um sure. my family business uh my cousins my uncles they all ran a company they still run it down in in compton called jack rubin and sons oh uh, they okay. sell they sell rigging equipment does does that ring a bell uh the name doesn't but you know rigging that's that's special effects to me yeah they have a they have a special yeah. outfit in burbank that that deals with the entertainment industry and they they wow. rigging rig, rigging was very very important very important part of their that business absolutely well, well you know gary we can talk all day long about movies and uh, I want to bring you on again, and I want to talk about some of your other credits, particularly Logan's Run and Damnation Alley. Damnation Alley is funny. I used to drive down the, the <laughs> Hollywood Freeway, and I'd always see that Landmaster parked there on the side of the road. I loved that unit. I got to ride <laughs> in it a lot of times. We rigged the the uh, rockets on the right. top that fired off. Took it up to uh, uh, Flathead Lake, Alec, up in Kalispell, Montana. And, oh wow! And, uh, it, that was a great show. Great. Yeah, show. no, that was definitely a fun show. Um, well, we, everyone, we have been listening to Gary King talking about his shows that he's worked on, and you know, we're not even covering his television work because we're a film uh, podcast. But he worked on dozens of television series and some great film credits. And uh, like I said earlier, the King family should be celebrated for being part of the. <laughs> salt of the earth of uh, Hollywood craftsmen. And Gary, thank you for coming on tonight. What a pleasure, Stephen. Thank you so much. You know, I, I could, same thing, I could talk about this for hours and hours, but uh, there's so many subject matters, all different movies. My favorites were all the 20s and the 30s, you know, sure. the comedies, TV comedy or movie comedies. I loved them all, but you know what? My, I'm writing a series of stories I wanted to send you some of them so you can check them out, see what you think. But I think that you, as a writer on your storyline you had talked about, you've got to be the director of that show. Well, thank I you. I, I, I hope to get in touch with my nephew, Chris, about that. Well, thank you. And we'll definitely stay in touch. You've been listening to Saturday Night at the Movies. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer's Ben Shrewsbury. Our guest tonight was Gary King. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week on Saturday night at the movies.